Well, it wasn't so long ago that over 40% of the population in the American South were enslaved. You know, these slaves were poor. They were often beaten, sold for money, separated from their families. They owned no property. Rather, they were the property of the rich. Yet despite all the trouble, despite all the suffering that the American slaves endured for so many years in this land, it didn't stop them from singing. Many of the slaves' beloved hymns are still known to us today. Swing low, sweet chariot, amazing grace, go down Moses, we could keep on going. Most of the time, these old spirituals were sung in the minor key. And if you had been traveling in the 1800s, in the south, in the plantations, you would have heard the mournful yet joyful anthems of slaves as they labored in the fields. The American slave, like so many oppressed peoples, sang about freedom. They sang about heaven. They looked back even to the Exodus, where God mightily delivered his people, and they asked through their songs for God to remember them and to deliver again. Last week, Michael concluded his sermon by reflecting of the cry of the Israelite slaves in Egypt, and we heard from Exodus 2, just the final verses there in that chapter, The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. I wonder if Israel's cries and groans in Egypt all those years ago ever made their way into songs. Well, today we're going to fast forward about 1,300 years from that time where we left Moses and the Hebrews last week and consider one of the first songs of Christianity, of the Christian faith, Mary's Magnificat in Luke 1. The title Magnificat comes from just the first word of the hymn in Latin, which is to magnify. And while Mary was no slave... She was a Jew and a woman, and she was pregnant without a husband. She was from a small, insignificant town, and she was poor. And she lived in Israel at a time when Rome ruled, and the word of, the word of a prophet hadn't been heard in the land for over 400 years. Mary did not have a whole lot going for her. She was at the bottom of the socioeconomic scale. But something unusual has happened to Mary. The angel Gabriel shows up at her house in Nazareth and tells her this. Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. 
Amazingly, this young virgin, Mary, believes Gabriel's promise to her, and she becomes pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Mary then goes and visits her cousin, Elizabeth, and who, too, is miraculously pregnant, even though she was barren and over 100 years old. And as Mary arrives at Elizabeth's house, Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit, and in much excitement, Elizabeth breaks into kind of a mini song herself, blessing Mary and blessing the baby in her womb. Let's read Mary's song now. You'll be helped if you turn to Luke chapter 1, verse 46. In the Pew Bibles, it's on page 1589. Let's hear what God is saying to us this morning. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. Well, this song, as you might have seen, is a calm and measured song, but filled with confident joy. Mary rejoices that God has had such mercy on her and will have mercy on all who are humble. She praises God for remembering his covenant promise of old to Abraham and to the patriarchs. Mary's ancient hymn calls us to respond today. And it calls us to three responses, at least. It calls us, one, to rejoice in God. And two, to rejoice specifically in the great reversal that he's worked. And three, to rejoice that God has remembered his promise. That's just going to be the outline as we walk through this hymn this morning. Mary's song calls us to rejoice in God, rejoice in the great reversal, and rejoice that he has remembered his promise. So first, let's consider that this hymn calls us to rejoice in God. That's exactly what Mary's doing, isn't it? Right here at the beginning. The praise rises up from deep within her, deep from within her spirit and her soul. We see that in verse 46. And we see that her praise is grounded in who God is, God's character. She recognizes that God alone is Lord. He is the sovereign master. He is the ruler of the world. He is the God that we praise as Jeff led us in prayer just earlier in the service. He is majestic. He has cast all the stars in the sky. He knows them all by name. And she is full of joy because she understands that this mighty God 
this creator and sovereign ruler is for her. That he is the God of her salvation. He is her savior. I wonder if we can relate to Mary just right here at the beginning. Are we so familiar with who God is that it causes us to rejoice in him, to delight in his character, to have the praise rise from deep within us when we consider who he is and what he has done? You know, maybe maybe you're here this morning and you're not a you're not a Christian. You're not maybe used to being in a church service. I want to let you know that you're more than welcome here. We're so glad that you're here. We're not inviting you this morning by me preaching this sermon and us having this Christian service. We're not trying to get you to believe primarily in a set of ideas. We're not trying to talk you into joining this church or believing exactly as we do about everything. We're not asking you to become a conservative Baptist. You know, fundamentally, what we hope that you will see is the glory of God this morning, that you will hear from him and that you will find your delight in him. That's that's our hope. We're hoping that you will delight in who God is. We want to introduce you this morning to someone who is great and mighty. You know, just imagine for a moment here, this is pretty far-fetched, but imagine, let's say, you know, I, I did live in D.C. for a little while, so imagine I was good friends with President Obama or former President Bush, okay? That we're real good friends, and he comes out to see me, you know, once a week, and we go and grab a bite to eat together. And I invite, you know, different friends or different people in the church to come and join us for some food as we hear some stories about the White House. Even if you're not into President Obama or former President Bush, wouldn't you be kind of excited to get an invite? It's like, hey, why don't you come and join us and, and hear some stories from the president? Wouldn't that be a cool story to tell your kids? You know, I went and had some pizza with President Obama or President Bush. This morning, Mary is introducing us to someone who's far greater, someone who's more real, more powerful, and has so much more to say to us than any president, than all the presidents have ever said. He is God Almighty. He is maker of heaven and earth. He has spoken to us in his word, and he's a God who saves. So let his word be his introduction to you this morning. To know him, when you see him for who he is, you will love him. If you really understand who God is and you truly know him, you will not be able to help but rejoice in who he is. You know, but Mary doesn't just rejoice in who God is, but what he's done. So let's consider that. Mary understands that just as Gabriel and Elizabeth have told her, she is greatly favored. She is a very favored one because God has blessed her specifically in an astounding way. She is now the mother of the Messiah. I mean, this is pretty incredible and unique. And Mary believes this mighty miracle has been done in her womb. We see that in this song. She believes. And she believes that everything is going to be different, not just for her, but for the people of God from now on. We see in verse 48 that she thinks that future generations will call Mary blessed because of God's gracious choosing of her. You know, God didn't choose her because of anything inherent in her. You know, Mary needed a savior, too. 
but God just had kindness and mercy on Mary and choosing her to be the mother of the Messiah. And he, he chose the most unlikely of candidates, as we considered here at the beginning. Mary recognizes this. She recognizes her humble state and rejoices in what God has done. So let me just speak to Hinson, to our church right now. Let's help one another regularly rejoice in who God is and what he has done. You know, maybe we haven't been impregnated with the Holy Spirit, but God, if you are a Christian, has done something much more even miraculous than that, if you can believe it. Because God himself has come to dwell in you by his Holy Spirit. God himself is with you if you are a Christian. He's living inside of you. He has done an amazing thing to come dwell with sinners like us, those who are so often proud. He has come to dwell with. You know, let's let's just summarize what God has done for us. And let's let's do this regularly to ourselves and to one another just by using God's word to summarize what God has done for us. This mighty work. I'm just going to use Titus three, three through seven. It reads this at one time. We, too, were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. If we really believe that, it will change everything. It will change everything in our lives. You know, maybe we maybe you need to memorize Titus 3, 3 through 7, in order to regularly remind yourself of what God has done for you. If you have a hard time, you know, in the, in the grind of the, the everyday life, remembering what God has done for you and finding joy, use God's word to, to slap you in the face and remember what God has done for you. For Christians should know great joy in God and what he has done for them. And when it comes to reminding one another of what God has done, you know, let's continue to use the scriptures to do that. Mary was able to speak these words, not because she just had good intentions, her heart was in the right place, or she was a positive thinker. You know, it's clear that Mary had been meditating on Hannah's song from 1 Samuel 2. She knew that. You know, Mary's probably only 15 years old here when she sings this song. She's so familiar with the Old Testament that she is able to kind of take 1 Samuel 2 and put it into her own words and apply it to her situation, to apply God's word to what's happening to her right now. Not only 1 Samuel 2, but the Psalms are peppered all throughout the psalm. Mary knew God's word. Do you know God's word? I think so often we are lazy. We are distracted by the urgent. And just even thinking of, uh, of what Michael challenged us to do this last summer, I, I'm just going to ask you again. Have you picked up, this isn't God's word, but will, it will help you meditate in God's word, D.A. Carson's A Call of Spiritual Reformation. 
Have you had a chance to read that yet? Michael challenged us to read that this summer. This is not to guilt those of you who haven't. But that will transform how you think about the Christian life. It will transform your prayer life because it will cause you to pray God's word back to him. You know, if we take time to read God's word, to meditate in it, to praise God for what he has done, rather than our tendency, which is just to, when we pray, come to God with our laundry list of the things that we need. You know, we will delight in him if we just take a moment to remember who he is and what he's done. Well, specifically, we should rejoice in the great reversal that God has worked for us, that he has accomplished for the humble. So we see that number two. We should rejoice in the great reversal God has worked for the humble. You know, Mary is only able to rejoice in God because she recognizes her humble state in light of the glory of God and his power. You know, we see that here in verses 47 and 48. Mary's taking great joy in her low status. You know, she, she is humble and she's taking joy in that. You know, that seems very backwards to us. She even kind of refers to herself as a servant or a slave there in verse 48. And this makes her happy. It's like, I'm a slave. This is wonderful. She has great happiness in her poverty. Why? Well, as we've already considered, it's because God has done something amazing for his humble servant. And, and Mary can speak for all of God's people here. And she does. She goes on. She essentially quotes from Psalm 103 here in verse 50. God's mercy is from generation to generation to those who fear him. You know, ultimately, it's not the powerful. It's not the rich. It's not the gifted. That God has mercy on. This is a way that God shows that he is set apart, that he is holy. He doesn't see as man sees. You think that God would look specially for the people that he has uh, gifted with great communication skills or, or whatever to bless. But consider throughout history whom God has chosen to be his instruments. It's not the people that we would have chosen. I mean, you can just go through the Old Testament. Start, you know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Judah, Moses, Rahab, Ruth, Gideon, Samuel, David. Yeah, I, I could just keep on naming names and we could look at their lives. They were all unlikely candidates for different reasons. And now consider God's holiness in choosing Mary of all people. I, I love what John Piper says about this passage. He says, God is about to change the course of all of human history. The most important three decades in all time are about to begin. And where is God? Well, he's occupying himself with two obscure, humble women, one old and barren, one young and unmarried. And Mary is so moved by this vision of God, the lover of the lowly, that she breaks out in song. And Mary's song reveals that she fears God because he is holy. She realizes that she does not deserve this favor. This is a great reversal for our human way of thinking. Are you like Mary? Do you think that fearing a holy God 
is the way to happiness? Or do you live your life as though fulfilling your desires, doing what you want to do, will bring you happiness? You know, Leo Tolstoy remarks on this in his novel Anna Karenina through the character of Vronsky, who had just run away with his lover. Vronsky got what he wanted. He had wanted for so long. And Tolstoy writes, writes, Vronsky, meanwhile, despite the full realization of what he had desired for so long, was not fully happy. He soon felt the realization of his desire had given him only a grain of the mountain of happiness he had expected. It showed him the eternal air people make in imagining that happiness is the realization of desires. All of us are pursuing our own personal happiness. How are you pursuing yours? Is it through riches, family, friends, food and drink, your job, success, sex, travel, the newest electronic gadget, maybe getting rid of all your gadgets and simplifying your life, the outdoors, maybe a new game that's coming out. You know, our nature, it's, you know, it's never just one thing. But our nature is to find our identity in everything and anything but the one thing that will bring us true happiness. You know, we have it, we have it so backwards because it's the poor and it's the humble who fear God who will know true happiness. Do you really believe this? Does your life give evidence that you believe this? You know, let's, again, find ways to encourage one another to hold on to God, who is most precious, who is more precious than the stuff that he gives us. Because, honestly, our natural tendency is not going to be to humble ourselves and fear God and look to him for happiness. You know, it's going to feel very unnatural, especially as we've spent most of our lives pursuing happiness in the things of this world. It's going to feel like going to the store, getting in your car and driving all the way there in reverse gear. We need other Christians around us to convince us you're not crazy. This is this is what God calls us to do. But it feels so unnatural. One way we can root our happiness in what God has done and not the pride of this life is by giving away the things that fool us into thinking they will bring us happiness. So, I mean, Luke, here in this book, has Jesus talking about money a ton. And I think it's interesting that here we are and one of the richest nations history has ever known, and yet all of us, or many of us, think We don't have a problem with loving money too much. That's not really a problem for us. Maybe it was once a problem, or maybe you know of someone that it's a problem for, but not for me. You know, I think that we are very good at deceiving ourselves because Jesus thought money was very deceptive and very tricky. So let's declare our independence from the things of this world, from the slavery of money, By being generous with it, by sacrificially just giving it away, by knowing ourselves to be humble and that only God in himself can bring true happiness.
You know, for a life of generosity is a sign of a life that fears God and is looking for the reward that's to come. And that's the true path to happiness. Well, this is most clearly seen, I think, in the center and climax of Mary's song, which is in verses 51 through 53. So in these verses, Mary begins to speak more generally about God's great reversal in regards to the humble and the proud. You know, she has begun with her situation kind of personally in verses 46 through 49. And then she uses verse 50 kind of as a hinge uh, to, to begin to praise God, both for what he will do for those who fear him and those who don't in verses 51 through 53. And while Mary talks about what God has done in these verses, she is really, in a sense, prophesying about what God is going to do. Because to know what God is going to do in the future, all we have to do is simply look at what God has done in the past. And we have seen in the past that God loves to vindicate the lowly. He loves to show his favor to the humble and those who fear him. And he does that by judging the proud, by making this great reversal. We see here, even just right here in verse 51, God will use his mighty arm to save those who fear him, but the proud will be scattered. For who can oppose God? You know, I think what's scary for us sitting here this morning is we understand we're, we're not opposing God with our pride, kind of like Pharaoh, you know, being very obstinate and opposing his will, thinking that we can oppose him. We, we recognize that maybe we can't do that, but we oppose him by thinking that maybe our ministry or our spiritual disciplines or the fact that I'm a better Christian than so-and-so will commend us to God. It will get us some favor with him. Well, we would do well to remember the, the short parable that Jesus tells just later on in Luke. It goes like this. To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. We we see the same idea right here in verses 52 and 53 of chapter 1. God brings down rulers and lifts up the humble. He fills the hungry with good things, and he sends the rich away empty. God delights in making these reversals. So, are we humble? Are we hungry as a church for God? Because that's the side we're going to want to be on when God makes this great reversal at the end. We want to be on the humble and hungry side. The book of Luke goes on to show that a key indication of humility and hunger comes from simply examining our prayer lives. Because it's the proud who think they don't need God's grace each day and each week. This is why in our church services here, 
even here this morning, we have devoted so much time to prayer and why in our two regular gatherings for the whole church every week, we devote one of them almost primarily to prayer. Because prayer shows who we are trusting in. You know, a prayerless life proves that you're trusting in yourself. Simply put, humble people pray. Humble people depend on God. So the most essential ministry, the most essential work that we can do as believers is to show and demonstrate our dependence on God by going to him regularly in prayer, both individually but also together. You know, Mary understands that being chosen to be the mother of this child is a great reversal. And she understands that this child's life will bring that great reversal between the humble and the proud. But what Mary doesn't fully understand is that God is going to bring about this great reversal through a great reversal in of itself. And that's what we want to consider as we conclude here. Number three, rejoice that God keeps his promise. And he keeps the promise through his humble son. We see this most clearly in verses 54 and 55. You know, God upholds and helps his servant Israel because he has remembered the covenant promise of mercy that he spoke to her of old, that he spoke to Israel. The reason why God's going to accomplish this great reversal is because of his commitment and his love to his people. You know, we read of God's covenant love for Israel in Deuteronomy. This is just a great summary of God's love for his people and why he loves his people. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you are more numerous than the other peoples. For you are the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commands. But those who hate him, he will repay to their face by destruction. He will not be slow to repay to their face those who hate him. Mary's song here at the beginning starts with great joy because of God's favor to her. But the song concludes here with thinking of God's mercy to his people corporately. In giving Mary this song, God has given his people the help that they desperately need. And giving Mary the son, help is here. Hope has come. And this morning, God offers you hope. He offers you help through his son. He doesn't owe us help, but he gives it to us. And on our own, we're going to make a mess of the help that he gives us. You know, we will take the help and quickly become proud, become selfish, 
make our religion private. But the proud are precisely whom God opposes. We need one another in this church to stay humble. And we cultivate humility by opening our lives to one another. By getting to know people who are different from us. From confessing our sin to one another. To, by inviting people to speak into our lives and ask us hard questions about our money. How we spend it, how we save it, how we give it. About uh, raising our kids. By working our jobs, praying, gathering with the church. We need people asking us hard questions. Because so often we justify ourselves. We deceive ourselves. So let's together open our lives to one another. As one early Christian said, he cannot have God as his father who does not have the church for his mother. God has made a promise to a people. But if we as a church can't love one another and be a family with one another by committing to one another, joining with one another, and serving one another, I don't know what it means for us to say that we know God. We can know God together because God will vindicate the humble, those who depend on him and trust him by opening their lives to other Christians. This is the promise that God made to Abraham, to trust in me, even though it's going to seem like I'm not meeting my promise. And what, what was specifically was that promise that God made to Abraham that Mary refers to here at the end of her song? Well, God promised that, uh, God, that Abraham's children would be more numerous than the stars in the sky and that he would bring Abraham's children into the promised land. Okay, so when Abraham receives that promise, he has no children and he's not in the land. And then Abraham dies and he's still not in the land And he has one son through whom the promise will come. Had God forgotten? What was God doing here? Was God not powerful enough to give Abraham just tons of kids and bring him into the land in his lifetime? No, Abraham knew the character of God. He knew that God was this God of great reversals who acts in unexpected ways, who keeps his promises even when death is on the door. Because as Abraham's dying, we know from Hebrews that he greeted the things that were promised to him by God from a distance. Mary, right here in our song, is recognizing that the distant things promised to Abraham are here now. And Abraham trusted in these promises to the end. And now they are being fulfilled through this baby in Mary's womb. But fast forward 30 years from Mary's pregnancy, from the time she sang the song with such confident joy. Mary is now standing in unspeakable shock and anguish at the foot of a Roman cross. Her son is hanging there, bloodied and suffocating. What's going through Mary's mind right then? Had God forgotten his promise? Not only his promise to Mary, that Mary gets through Elizabeth, through Gabriel, 
But has God forgotten his promise to Abraham? Because this child was the answer to Abraham's promise. This child was the hope of Israel. Did the promise die with Mary's son? Well, no. Because God delights in bringing victory out of utter defeat. In bringing life out of death. For Mary's son would not remain dead. Death would not have the last word. Once again, God was going to show the mighty strength of his arm. For Jesus Christ proved he was much more than Mary's son. He was the son of God. And death could not hold him down. And after he rose and ascended, we can know today that God's son is not finished. There is more victory to come. There is more promise to be fulfilled. Because there's still many proud and rich who mock God in their hearts. Many philosophies and religions that make a mockery and don't believe in the resurrection. There's many who are strong, who take advantage of the hungry and the poor. But not for long. It's only a matter of time. Justice is coming. Soon all will be made right. And God will lift up the humble and bring down the proud. How can we know this? How can we trust God when sometimes all we feel is the defeat, the death, the injustice? Well, Jesus is alive now, and he sits and reigns on his throne. And he has kept all of his promises all throughout history. And he promises us this now. Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Because God has never broken one of his promises, we can be sure that he will keep this last one to return and to lift up those who hunger for him, who delight in him, and who rejoice even in the midst of poverty. We simply live today awaiting the fulfillment of that promise. Like Mary, we must consider God's promise as good as done. Like Abraham welcomed the things that were promised from a distance, we must do the same and rejoice in God's mercy to us. Mercy that he has shown us and the mercy that is coming to us. So we should join in Mary's song today and forever. For God has done mighty things for us in his son. Holy is the name of Jesus. His mercy is for those who fear him by turning from their sin and trusting in Jesus Christ alone. He has shown great strength, the strength of his arm, by raising Jesus from the dead. He has scattered the proud who live as though they have no need for a savior. And he has brought the mighty down from their thrones. The greatness that the world values today will be shown as nothing in the end. And he has exalted Jesus, who lived the perfect life. 
And he will exalt all those who humble themselves and look to Jesus. He has filled the hungry with good things, for he gives us himself. Those who have lived for the riches of this world will be sent away empty in the end. But those who believe that God is strong enough to keep his promises, even when it looks like sin and death are undefeatable, will know God's mercy. And they will be his children, and God will be their God forever. If this doesn't give us reason to rejoice, what God has done for us, the mercy that he has shown us, I don't know what will. So thank God that he has looked on our spiritual poverty and had great mercy on us through the humility of his son. Let's pray. Great God, we give you praise and thanks that you did not leave us alone in our poverty, but you have shown great mercy to us through your Son. Lord, we pray that now you would help us to live humble lives of repentance and faith in you today, and this week and forever. We praise you as the God who humbled yourself and came to dwell with us, who knows our weakness and our suffering, and died for us. Lord, we pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.